Lord Jesus, we thank you for your name. And it is indeed a powerful name that we lift up this morning. We want you to be glorified. We want to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning through the preaching of the Word of God. So prepare our hearts. Start with mine. Speak through me as if you were physically present here. Amen. Take a seat. So you can learn from her, so. I gotta admit, before I begin, some of you heard me say this. I will be glad when this sermon series is over, and when this election is over. You know, I don't like talking about necessarily all these controversial issues, um, but are the issues that the Bible speaks to that it's relevant to today. And um, yeah, so let's dive right in. Um, at a Bible study during my senior year in college, a friend of mine, Paul Stefanski, he shared the story of his encounter with a closet homosexual. This was back in 1991, I believe it was. This is an incredible story. Uh, Paul was in the bathroom at Alden Library. Remember that? When he noticed uh, some numbers and letters written on the bathroom stall, he recognized them as call numbers for a book. I realized I probably need to explain what call numbers are anymore. It's like an address. It tells us where the book is located in the library. Do they even have libraries anymore at college campuses, by the way? Anyways, I used to have to go to the library to check out books and do studying and so on, but we have everything on the internet now. But curious, Paul went and found the book, and inside he discovered a note with a date and an invitation uh, to homosexual sex. He went to meet the young man to share the gospel with him. And when the young man found out Paul's purpose for meeting him, he was afraid and actually ashamed to be discovered. And how the times have changed, haven't they? Because that's not the case anymore. And I, I in preparing this, sermon on, on just the issue of, of homosexuality, the whole LGBTQ agenda, and, and, or LGBTQ movement, and so on. Um, it's just going to have to spill over into next week's sermon as well. There's, I didn't realize the degree that the Bible speaks on this issue. And I want to be clear on one thing, that it's not in this sermon, it'll be in next week's sermon. Sin is sin, okay? Sin is sin. So whether you're a thief or a liar or you're homosexual, sin is sin, okay? Now, the Bible does come out very strong on this issue, as you'll see, and I hope that you understand God's view on, on this and, and, and why some things are happening in our, our country, in our society, in the world. But we have a lot to go over this morning. God has a lot to say about homosexuality, so let's dive right in on this controversial subject. And in order to kind of discover or go through not just the, you know, we think of homosexuality as limited between a man and a man, and there's lesbianism and so on. It's really the whole LGBTQ plus that, that, that whole thing that we have right now. 
So let's talk about what the Bible says about transvestism and homosexuality. Um, there will be a lot of verses. I'm going to have you look up in your Bibles a few of them. But in Deuteronomy chapter 22, and we'll start in the Old Testament, verse 5, it says this, A woman shall not wear a man's garment. So a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So whenever you see the word abomination, that's not a good thing. Okay? Amen. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, I've been reading these verses to you well, because what was Satan's strategy? And you can just look up at me now, put your Bibles down, just look at me. What was Satan's strategy in the Garden of Eden? How did he lead mankind into sin? Well, he tempted Eve to usurp Adam's God-given role as the head of the relationship, take his authority, and lead the relationship. We've been over that before. But by doing so, she led all humanity into sin. So the fall of man was a case of what? Sex role reversal. You follow me so far? The woman taking the role of a man and the man taking the role of a woman. And so in the verses listed above, we have the Old Testament addressing the issue of a transvestite. We call it today cross-dressing, but we have a man taking the role of what? A woman, and a woman taking the role of a man. Now, no matter what you call it, it's an abomination to God. And to be even more specific, uh, in the Hebrew, which was the original language of the Old Testament, the statement would read this way, a woman shall not use that which pertains to a man. It's not just the dress. A woman shall not use that which pertains to a man. So it's a very broad statement. It includes not just clothing, but more generally a man's style of life. It's very important, the uniqueness of the male and female. There's a distinction between the two. Physically, there are distinctions. So it Generally, it refers to a man's style of life, implements, weapons, tools, etc. It's anything that blurs the distinctiveness between a woman and a man. And God says it's an abomination to try and look and act like the opposite sex. And this kind of crossing over has been going on in all of human history. And you find it in the false religion of ancient times. And I read a verse to you that talked about a man's organs being crushed. What would that be referring to today? Testicles being removed. It's a sex change. So the Bible even addresses that issue in the Old Testament. Everybody turn to Leviticus 18. Go right to Genesis. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The third book in the Bible. This is one of the few verses that we'll look at this morning. Leviticus 18, starting in verse 22. Look up, get your Bible out, get your iPad out, get your phone out. Let's go there. Okay. Leviticus 18, 22 through chapter 19, verse 2. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. 
You guys with me so far? Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these things the nations that I am driving up before you have become unclean. So what do we have happening in the nations that God is driving out? Bestiality, sex with animals, and homosexual sex. Lesbian sex, all of that. Verse 25, And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. That was what I want you to probably highlight in your Bible. Verse 26, But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that what? Highlight verse 27, The land became what? Unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Should highlight that verse. So the nation is, the land is literally vomiting out, they say. It's pushing out because of these abominations, the peoples. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Do you know what the Old Testament said all that stuff? Stay there. I'm going to read Leviticus 20.13. Leviticus 20.13 to you. It says this, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. So, can, let me summarize kind of what we've been talking about, about transvestism and homosexuality and what the Old Testament says about that. It is an abomination to dress like the opposite sex. It's an abomination to have some kind of sex change altering of your body. It's an abomination to have a relationship with someone of the same sex. And this is all in the context of having intercourse with an animal. Did you guys know that? That's the level of this perversion in the eyes of God. Just like a woman having a relationship with an animal. Now what happens when this kind of perversion takes place? Well, this kind of perversion makes the land what? Unclean. And it does what? It brings God's judgment upon the nation, the vomiting out of the nation. He's driving out these nations. And remember what I said last week, that murder was what? The murder of babies makes the land blood guilty, that their blood cries out, like the blood of Abel cries out for justice, for revenge, for vengeance. And the Old Testament says a life taken Life must be given, a life for a life. So the murder of babies makes the land blood guilty, and their blood cries out for punishment. Well, homosexuality makes the land unclean, makes the land blood guilty, Leviticus 20, 13, and cries out for God's judgment. God's requirement for his people is to be holy, set apart, to be different, and may I put it in another way, God's people must take a stand against this perverted sexually immoral behavior. 
That's what he's saying. Be holy, be different. And this is why we must be educated on what God's word says regarding these issues in the upcoming election. Because it is a shocking thing when what I just read becomes a political party's agenda. It is very disturbing to me as a pastor. Now, let's talk about homosexuality in the New Testament. I'll well, listen to a few of these verses, and uh, you can turn to Romans 1, but just listen to these verses. This is 1 Timothy 1. This is about the law addressing sexual morality. Understanding, understanding this, it's 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The law is given to expose these sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So in the New Testament, we see that the law of God is made to expose the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, sinners of all kinds, including homosexuals, and that they will not, they will not, they will not, hear me on this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, why? Well, because they have not repented of their sin, put their faith in Jesus Christ. They continue to practice, it's men who practice homosexuality, they're practicing this lifestyle. God says, the kingdom of heaven is not for you. So again, we see the New Testament agreeing with the Old Testament in condemning the sin of homosexuality. The point is, is that God's law is unchanging from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The New Testament also agrees with the Old Testament in that the perverse sin of homosexuality brings the judgment of God. You should be at Romans 1. Start at verse 18. Let's read it. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You may want to underline the phrase, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up, you should under, under, underline that phrase, gave them up, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth, underline that phrase, 
about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up, underline that, to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God, underline those words, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, then only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And what we need to understand as we go through this passage is there are different types of God's wrath. And what wrath is God referring to here? Well, it's not an end times wrath when you think of the wrath of God and Jesus Christ returns and all the bad things of Revelation kind of happen. But we're talking about here the wrath of abandonment. That's what Paul's referring to. That's why I had you I highlighted at least the phrase, God gave them up three times in this passage. This is when God abandons society and gives them over to their consequences of their behavior, which leads to judgment. Now you're also going to find that the people have the truth about God. But what do they do to that truth? They suppress the truth, and they exchange the truth. God is revealed in creation, and he's revealed in the heart. I mean, they suppress it. They exchange it, and they turn to false religions, worshiping idols. And though that society may consider itself to be wise, did you see that? They think they're wise. It is, in reality, foolish what they're doing. Because eventually, their human heart becomes darkened when it abandons God. They've lost all moral center in their lives. Now, for my purposes this morning, I want you to pay particular attention to the sequence of what happens when God abandons a nation. This is probably what you'll start to see now where this relates to us right now. The first thing is verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. When God abandons a culture, the first thing that happens is that a culture becomes obsessed with sex. That's what it means. You have every kind of sexual behavior. Think of verse 24 as a sexual revolution. Does that help? A sexual revolution. Verse 26, the second sequence. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, and it goes on to describe homosexual and lesbian sex. So the second thing that happens when God abandons a culture is a homosexual revolution. You with me so far? Sexual revolution followed by a homosexual revolution. Sadly, but it's you reap what you sow, this revolution is accompanied with penalties. In other words, 
sexually transmitted diseases associated with homosexual behavior. This is what the phrase receiving in themselves the due penalty for their heirs referring to in our time. So in our time, homosexual behavior, what did it do? What unleashed upon the world the horror of AIDS? So we see a sexual revolution that's followed by what? A homosexual revolution, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 28, it says, and since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, there's that phrase again, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And it goes on to describe what they do. The third thing that happens, you have a sexual revolution followed by a homosexual revolution. The third thing that happens when, when God abandons a culture is a depraved mind. That's a mind that is not functioning properly and cannot think right. And the results are all the things in verses 29 down. It's what I call a life that is filled with insane unrighteousness and includes such thing as murder. Now, we talked about that last week. We have laws, and this doesn't make any sense, mind you, but we have laws that protect pigeons and goldfish, and we have laws that legalize the slaughter of millions of unborn infants in the womb. It's carried out in our country and around the world. And perhaps the defining characteristic of this depraved mind is that they become, as it says here, haters of God, who heartily approve of this insane, nonsensical, unrighteous behavior. So I want you to see that the entire Bible is clear and consistent. When a society affirms homosexuality, what does it bring? The judgment of God. That's what Romans 1, 18-32 is saying. So let's talk about homosexuality and judgment of God. Everyone turn to Genesis 19. Genesis chapter 19. I want you to give a picture of God's attitude toward homosexuality and what and when God does what he said he was going to do in the writings of the Old Testament and in Romans chapter 1. Now I want you to keep in mind as well that in the, this isn't the beginning of human history. This is Genesis chapter 19. You find a city called Sodom. And by this time, homosexuality spread everywhere. And notice, folks, that it didn't take long. This is Genesis. It's the very beginning of creation and of time. Genesis chapter 19. But I want you to, just to give you an idea... In Genesis chapter 3, you find the account of the fall of man, Adam and Eve and the sin and, and all of that. In Genesis chapter 6, you have the sexual perversion of demonic angels attempting to procreate with women. Remember that? Throughout the book of Genesis, you'll find stories of incest, rape, prostitution, and adultery. These are all sexual sins. In the 19th chapter you find two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, that are literally defined by rampant homosexuality. So much to the point that the word sodomite means homosexual. We'll get to that in a minute. Genesis 19. It says, Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. This is verse 1. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. 
then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So we have angels actually taking the form of real human bodies. And Lot, who was a descendant of Abraham, who knew the perversion of this city, is really practicing hospitality with a motive. He's trying to protect them from what most likely was going to happen. Verse 4. But before the, they lay down, for the, the family and Lot's family and these visitors were to go to sleep for the night, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. So the whole place is caught up in sodomy, homosexuality. Look at what it says, both what? Young and old, all the people to the last man. And they are literally surrounding Lot's house. Word got out that two beautiful men have shown up in the town and they're ready for a mass gang rape. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now remember Romans 1. God gives men over to a depraved mind that cannot think right. You with me so far? You can remember that to help you understand Lot's stupidity. Because here's evidence of such corrupted thinking. Lot probably thought this was a safe suggestion. Don't rape my, my guests. Rape these daughters. It merely highlights the kind of perversion that has no interest in what is normal. In fact, Lot had contented himself with a less deviant type of wickedness. That's what happens when a culture abandons God and the thinking gets is not right. And mind you, Abraham knew that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God let him know that. And so Abraham, and you can read this in chapter 18, before this happened, negotiated with God, said, God, if there's 50 righteous people, spare the city. Then what happens next? He negotiates down from 43, gets down to 10. If there's 10 righteous, and God says, if there's 10 righteous, I'll spare the city. There weren't 10 righteous there. But there was one who was righteous, it was Lot. And how did he think? His mind was totally depraved. Not totally depraved, he was depraved. It affected even him. Verse 9, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal with with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. In other words, get out, of your, get out of our way or we will do worse to you than we're about to do to these men. Verse 10, 
But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Now the text says that despite being struck with blindness, now catch this, the men wore themselves out groping for the door. Now what? Why is that there? Because any reasonable person would be thinking, what happened to me? How did I become blind, right? But again, what kind of mind do they have? A depraved mind. So the blindness doesn't change anything. In their blindness, they are wearing themselves to find the door. Now why? Because homosexuality comes with an uncontrollable lust that defies restraint. Even in blindness, they are trying to meet their sexual needs. They're trying to fulfill their lust. So they are fighting or in blindness to get to the door to engage in a gang rape with these men. Verse 12, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for you're about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy this city. I mean, if you live like this, God will send his judgment. And of course, you know the rest of the story. Verses 24 and 25. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Don't skip over this. The land had become defiled. It was unclean and it needed to be cleansed. So everything is destroyed. Cities, I mean, all the homes, the buildings, gone. The people, gone. Even the vegetation, you see that? What grew in the ground became defiled, unclean, gone. This is a graphic illustration of how God feels about a society that affirms homosexuality. Now from Genesis 19 on, the word for homosexual is the word sodomy. So homosexual was considered a sodomite. You find it in the Old Testament term for homosexual used in like 1 Kings 14, 24, and Deuteronomy 23, 17, and 18. Let me just listen to this, because this is, I didn't know this. I discovered this this week. This is, just listen, Deuteronomy 23, 17, to 18. And none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. And none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. So what is that? Well, you go to these, these religious sites, or cults, and part of the worship was women having sex with men. And in this case, it wasn't just men having sex with women, it was men having sex with men, and women having sex with women. So it was homosexuality, lesbianism, all that. God says, none of your daughters shall be a cult prostitute, none of your sons shall be a cult prostitute. Now look at, listen to verse 18. You shall not bring the fee. They'd be paid for this, by the way. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. So the fee of a prostitute, a woman, can't be brought in, but it also says something interesting. 
or the wages of a dog. If you look up the word dog in the Hebrew, you know what that means? Male prostitute. So God calls homosexuals sodomites and dogs. A very graphic description of their conduct. You try calling a homosexual dog today. So what what word do we use? We want to lessen the severity of this perverse sin. So what do we call homosexuals? Gay. That's the word means lighthearted, carefree, bright and snowy. The pictures that we see of, of a gay person are very intellectually smart. They dress sharp. They're usually thin, right? This perfect image of an individual. We'll get there in a minute. But that's the picture that the world promotes of a homosexual. The opposite of what the Bible teaches. In Isaiah chapter 3, you can just listen to this. Actually, go there. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. You will find Isaiah talking about the coming judgment of God upon Judah, the southern kingdom, because of their sin. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Yeah, this is not, <laughs> this is not fun stuff to go, through, go over, but we need to know this stuff. For Jerusalem has stumbled, Isaiah 3, verse 8, and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. So the people are so brazen about their sin that it is compared to the blatant sin of the Sodomites that assaulted Lot's house. So the homosexuals that surround the house for that massive gang rape, they're brazen and blatant about it. The people of Israel are sinning with such brazenness. So there's no attempt to hide their sin. In fact, instead, they're proclaiming it. Verse 10, tell the righteous what it shall be, that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. So God's people are so weak that even an infant could overpower them. Infants are their oppressors. Because who is ruling over them? Women rule over them. Now, what does that phrase mean? Let me ask you this. Did women rule over a Jewish nation in the Old Testament culture? No. Other than Deborah once as a whole, and Deborah isn't mentioned here, women never ruled. They were second-class citizens. So what's this phrase, women rule over them, mean? Most likely, Isaiah is referring to a sodomite. Homosexuals in the government ruling. The feminine man. And they're leading the nation astray. You see that? So Isaiah knew that homosexuality, sodomy, it was all around them. In Assyria, 
for example, and it's just, you guys, just look up me and just listen for the next while because I want to go through some history here. You will find laws in Assyria, and I researched all this, that accepted homosexual behavior under certain conditions. In fact, Assyrian law interpreted a man desiring homosexual penetration as a social status issue, an affirmation of this behavior. Assyria was destroyed in 612 BC. Remember, talking about homosexuality and judgment of God. Homosexuality was a part of life in Babylon. Babylonians felt no sense of social stigma about homosexuality and thus practice it openly and freely. Some homosexual acts were thought to bring about good fortune. Babylon was destroyed in 539 BC. Homosexuality as a lifestyle was affirmed in ancient Egypt. According to Gady.com, it says, it has been found that ancient Egyptian society was familiar with homosexuality as a cultural norm and practice manifest in various artifacts and historical evidence. There's a, a tomb of two homosexual men engraved on the outside of the tomb of two pharaohs. It was known that there was much about homosexuality among the pharaohs. The Greek Empire, it was said about this, according to religionfacts.com, expressions of homosexuality in ancient Greece were commonplace. The ancient Greeks are widely known for the homosexual exploits. Now just listen to this because this carried over into the Roman government and the Roman Empire. The form of homosexuality that was most common in ancient Greece, and I read this in a number of places, was pederasty, pedestry, meaning a relationship between an adult male and a male youth. The Greeks' pederasty was more than a sexual pastime or preference, it was nearly a social institution. A same-sex relationship between an older man, probably in his 20s or 30s, known as Erastes, and a beardless boy, a youth, a young boy, the Arominus or Padika, it became a cultural ideal. So old men having homosexual sex with young boys. Greece was conquered and destroyed by the Roman Empire in 146 B.C. Following the same pattern, Roman culture affirmed homosexuality and fell under the judgment of God. You ask anybody, it's common knowledge anymore about the destruction of Rome, what happened. They're going to say, amongst other things, it was a great moral decay, but homosexuality was one of the major contributors to this. Nero was emperor when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He had a little boy named Sporus that he had castrated and then married and took him as a wife. And according to Patrick Lynch of historycollection.com, in the 2nd century B.C., the historian Polybius wrote of a decline in moral virtue that led to the fall of the Republic of Rome. The same affliction appeared to damage the, the entire empire. The original ideals, values, and traditions upon which Rome was founded declined. Sound familiar? And were replaced by a nation and a notion that life was cheap, and depravity, gluttony, and cruelty were the norm. Folks, homosexuality has always been a deadly and damaging and damning sin. How about homosexuality in America? Well, homosexuality continued to be ignored or tolerated by the Christian church throughout Europe. But beginning in the later 12th century, 
hostility toward homosexuality began to take root and eventually spread throughout European religious and secular institutions, and it made its way over into America. You find religious teachings were soon incorporated into legal sanctions, and many of the early American colonies enacted stiff criminal penalties for sodomy. Now, why they wouldn't do that for, they that stuff for other, other, you lie or you're a thief and so on. They equated it as something that was not healthy. It was a sickness. But by the end of the 19th century in America, even though it was considered a sickness, i.e. homosexuality as a sickness, some adopted a more accepting stance of homosexuality. In 1881, Sigmund Freud came along and said what? I've studied homosexual behavior, and I've concluded it's a psychological disorder that comes from a domineering mother. Early in the 20, 20th century, 1901, Havelock Ellis argued that homosexuality was inborn and therefore not immoral, that it was not a disease, and that many homosexuals made outstanding contributions to society. It's from a psychology at University of Cal Davis study. So Ellis claimed that homosexuality is a genetic gift and that homosexuals are uniquely geniuses. And he published a list of supposed homosexualities from Erasmus, which was a Dutch humanist, Christopher Marlowe, the English poet, Michelangelo, Francis Bacon, Oscar Wilde, Walt Whitman, and so on. So for Ellis, a homosexual was an elevated human being at another level of genius. It was in the 1940s and 50s that Albert Kinsey came along and fabricated the lie that one out of 10 people in America were genetically homosexual. 1960s, America began to go through a sexual revolution. It challenged traditional beliefs related to sexuality. The sexual liberation included increased acceptance of sex outside of traditional heterosexual monogamous relationships, including marriage, the normalization of contraception in the pill, public nudity, pornography, homosexuality, alternate forms of sexuality, and illegalization of abortion all followed. In 1973, with the changing social norms and the development of a politically active homosexual community in the United States, the American Psychiatric Association declassified homosexuality as a sickness. In 1986, the same organization began to work intensively to eradicate the stigma historically associated with the homosexual orientation. So now homosexuality is not only acceptable, but it's advocated. Now, do you remember the sequence of Romans 1 that leads to the wrath of God and abandoning the society? What's the first thing that happens? A sexual revolution. We've had that. First. Romans 1.24. It's followed by what? A homosexual revolution, Romans 1.26, which is followed by a depraved mind, Romans 1.28. It is this depraved mind that justifies murder on a massive scale, abortion, that fosters hatred towards God and heartily endorses perverse sexual sin. Now, understanding this, can anyone reasonably argue that we are not living in the outpouring of the wrath of God's abandonment in America. You have to begin to see this. We've had our sexual revolution and homosexual revolution 
and our depraved minds advocate for sinful lifestyles that do not seek the welfare of the country, but rather only bring the judgment of God. And again, it's disturbing to me that one of the two main political parties is running on this agenda. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, I grew up in the sexual revolution. Our culture was all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I know some of you remember this. Everyone claimed to be sexually active. Pornography was limited to magazines. Homosexuality was frowned upon. I didn't even know anybody. We never really even talked about. In fact, I grew up playing the game Smear the Queer. Anyone familiar with that game at all? Ever heard it before? Yeah. I remember my freshman year in college being taken back when they installed the, the first vending machines in our dorm that, that solely dispensed condoms. As I ministered in campus ministry in the late 1990s after graduating from college, I began to see LGBT student groups popping up at Bowling Green State University, and this is in the conservative Midwest. And these groups, remember Erica, they were aggressive and pressing for LGBT rights. As we began our family and raised our kids, in 2009 we moved to an even more conservative part of the country in northeast Indiana to a small town with a heavy evangelical influence. You could not go a few miles without seeing a church. And I was surprised when the youth pastor whom I had hired told me that at Leo High School, a little small town of 1,200 people, I think, or so on, he told me it was considered popular to be gay. In 2015, I watched in shock and disgust when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of same-sex marriage. And we've all been speechless as the world we once knew no longer makes sense. I shared this in a sermon dated July 12, 2020. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is a quote from this sermon. Woe means a divine curse, and the specific result, specific result of this curse is society turning from God and turning upside down truth and righteousness. While it's necessary to keep law-abiding working people locked down at home because of the COVID-19 pandemic, it also appears that it's necessary to let criminals run free in the streets, in the cities, destroying the very places people earn their living. We will grind the world to a halt to stop a virus, then remove all restraint when mob rule sets out to destroy a whole nation. We will demand justice when a man's life is taken and then applaud criminals attacking the police. We put the police in a position where they can't properly protect, but Rebel mobs are allowed to destroy property. You can't shop in a store, but you can loot it. And the stores are leaving Seattle, by the way. You can't work, but you're free to steal. You can't attend church, but you can burn it down. Charges are being brought in these riots, not against the rioters, but against the police. We allow evil mobs to bring about destruction and the twisted solution by corrupt liberal leaders is to abolish the police whose purpose is to be the protectors of the good and the punishers of those who do evil. What is wrong? Well, the answer is what? God has given America over to a depraved mind. This is the evidence of that. 
it cannot think right. It is lawful to murder a child outside the womb, but unlawful to harm a bird or goldfish. The leaders of one of the main two political parties in the United States, the Democratic Party, advocates only for abortion, but also advocates for homosexuality. Two abominations that I think I've been clear the last two weeks that historically have brought the judgment of God. How does that make sense? It does not. It is only justified, and it can only be justified, by twisted thinking, a depraved mind. Now I present to you that the purpose of government, according to the first sermon in the series, according to Romans 13, is to do what? Punish evil and reward good. And here's a scary thought. And this is what you need to really think about as you vote. What if our elected leaders who have rejected God and suffering from a depraved mind cannot discern right from wrong or good from evil? What happens? Well, logically, wrong becomes what? Right, and evil becomes good. And so what is actually right and good, and this is playing out every day, just turn on your computer, go to the internet, it's playing out every day. What is actually right and wrong becomes unpopular and is persecuted. Let me give you one example to illustrate my point. If you openly question homosexuality, you are wrongly labeled what? Homophobic. I've also told you that I want to educate our congregation on the issues the Bible speaks to in this upcoming election. Romans 1.32 says this, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now there is no doubt, I hope you see, what the Bible says about the issue of homosexuality. And there was more there. I had to cut so much out. In the Western world, with its history of, of Christianity, it generally knows the truth about God and their conscience. In fact, all of the world does, in creation and in their heart, it's been given by God. But the Western world has had Christianity as the main religion. So the real issue is, despite knowing some in our country suppress the truth or exchange the truth, according to Romans chapter 1, and heartily approve those who practice this sexual perversion. So why am I doing this now? Why this sermon series? Because an entire political party in the United States thinks it is good. And they give hearty approval, and the church has to speak the truth to rescue the perishing. Homosexuals, all on the LGBTQ agenda that have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, will not get into the kingdom of God. But we have a party that, a political party that's approving of this behavior, which is basically opening the door for them to go where when they die. 
That's a question you have to answer this morning. To hell. But to speak out against this and call them to life is what? Hate speech, right? I mean, you see what Satan's doing. He's the real enemy behind all this. If Jesus were here, where would he be? He's not going to be in this room. He hung out with who? Sinners, tax collectors. Right from wrong, good from evil. It has been all turned upside down. Now, I've tried to make a biblical argument for Christians to not vote based upon whether you like or dislike a candidate's personality. I've tried to educate this church on the policies of each political party and how they measure up to the teachings of Scripture for the good of the country. Vote by the book or by the Bible is what I have a phrase I've repeated over and over and over and over and over. Don't set aside the Bible when you vote. But this election, it, I mean, I've, I've tried to get you to see that this election goes beyond personalities. And I've tried to tell you that this election is about the policies. But let me tell you now this morning that this election goes even beyond policies. After hearing the last two sermons, it should be plain to everyone that this election is about not personality, not policies, but about preservation. Namely, the preservation of our nation. Our nation has abandoned God. It, it, I, I hope you understand that in light of this sermon this morning. I cannot make it any clearer. Romans 1 is playing out before our very eyes in our country. We are under his wrath. We must vote with a biblical worldview that will bring God's blessings and not bring his judgment on America. And let's be clear, for my own sake, I don't care for either political party. I'm about God's kingdom. I want to close with this brief analogy. The HBO series Game of Thrones, it was very aptly named, by the way, was one of the most popular series ever produced. It could, however, be have been named Bending the Knee because the entire series is based upon claiming the Iron Throne and others bending the knee in submission. In order to preserve her family name, the main character, Daenerys Targaryen, sought the Iron Throne once occupied by her father. Her main concern is others bending the knee. Say it with me. Bending the knee bending the knee to her rule. Through her rule, in which others bend the knee, she reasons, is the only way she can preserve her family, because she is the last of the Targaryens. We see, God desires to rule too. He requires his citizens to what? Bend the knee in submission to his rule and authority. And through bending the knee, say it with me, bending the knee, this is how his kingdom comes 
and how his kingdom is preserved. And as representatives of not only his kingdom, but of American citizens, how will this country go on? We bend the knee to God and ask his blessings for the preservation of our nation. But what if his people don't bend the knee? What happens? What if God's people don't bend the knee? Well, his rule is limited in its power and effectiveness. So bend the knee. Bend the knee to God with your vote. Practice kingdom voting. And so it's a very simple application point. Will you bend the knee and vote for the preservation of our nation? It's not about personalities. It's not about policies. We're to the point now where it's about preserving this nation. I cannot be any clearer on this. I need to see that you guys got this. Do you understand the idea of preserving our nation, that we are under the wrath of God? Does this, did this make sense to you? Okay, I didn't hear it from everybody. Raise your hand if this made sense to you. Because if not, then I will meet with you one-on-one -on -one and we'll go over this again. Okay? I try to simplify it for us. Personality, no. Policies, really, no. Preservation, yes. So which candidate has policies that will bring welfare or blessings upon the country. Pray about this. Submit to God and vote. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We understand what's at stake. At least I hope we're beginning to understand what's at stake. And we have sinned, Father. I think of Daniel confessing his sins and the sins of, of his people and of the nation before you. We have turned from you. And we, in too many ways, look like the world. May we be holy. May we be different, set apart. And may we surrender to you in all areas of our lives. And may our lives be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, bringing blessing upon those whom we interact with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm tired of this heaviness in this church. We'll get through this, all right? But let's stand up. Let's sing a song. We'll close with this. And after the song, you have a great Sunday.